Al Jazeera Podcasts. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? We meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running. And artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism. Indigenous AI, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Pulling the plug, more countries have cut funding for the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Israel says some UNRWA staff were involved in Hamas's October attacks, but how valid is that accusation and what does it mean for the people of Gaza? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In Rafa, in southern Gaza, we have Samir Zakrut. He's a social activist who's been displaced himself by Israel's war. He advocates for Palestinian rights. In Ottawa, we have Adi Imseis. He's a professor of international law at Queen's University and is also author of a new book entitled The United Nations and the Question of Palestine. He previously served, too, as a legal counsel for UNRWA. And in Oslo, Raymond Johansson is the Secretary General of Norwegian People's Aid, which has provided humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip now for more than 35 years. He's also a former Norwegian State Secretary for Foreign Affairs. Welcome, gentlemen, to our program today. Thank you for joining us on Inside Story. Samir, I'm going to start with you because you're on the ground there in the Gaza Strip. Can you describe for us what UNRWA means to people there in Gaza and maybe give us a, a summary of, of the reaction that you've been hearing to both the, the Israeli allegations that we've been hearing and the sackings by UNRWA? I think when we are talking about UNRWA here in Gaza Strip, we are talking about like kind of uh, a government for the refugees because uh, the UNRWA provide everything uh, for the refugees in Gaza. You know, in Gaza Strip, 70, around 70% of the population here are refugees from 1948. So that the UNRWA provide many services like education, healthcare, even uh, food uh, uh, services. Uh, uh, and uh, no one can imagine that the UNRWA uh, uh, will stop their uh, services and their work. And I, I think even the other uh, uh, UN agencies like OCHA, like uh, uh, World Food Program, like uh, World Health Organization, even they will stop without the, uh, the supporting of UNRWA for their work. I don't think that or imagine any of those agencies will work here in Gaza Strip. And I, I think this decision is coming after the ICJ decision uh, that uh, telling us that the Israelian may be they committing the genocide in Gaza especially not just like the people here, they are not killed by ro rockets or, or bombs, but even with the famine, with, with the famine, yeah. with the, 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 the needs of food, of medicine, 
you know, there is nothing here in Rafah. We are talking about the place which, like before, this displaced uh, from all the Gaza uh, governorate to, to Rafah. We are talking about around 30 hundred thousands. Now we are talking about one million point four or point five. How how can Rafah uh, uh, react or or uh, can uh, give or provide provide any services for uh, those refugees? In, in the Israel, I think they change all the Gazinian as a refugee. Some of them refugees from 1948 and the others now from 2023. And I, I don't imagine any state wide the world can talk about the justice, about the human rights, and after the ICJ decision can stop, donate uh, uh, the UNRWA because it's kind of decision to kill all the people here in Gaza Strip by, by famine, by, by uh, the chronic diseases like blood pressure. You know, there is no medicine in the pharmacies mm -hmm. here. For example, yeah. myself, I'm a refugee from uh, my family displaced from uh, our own uh, village in uh, 1948 place. Uh, no time I, I, I go to UNRWA, for example, health cares, because I have a good like lifestyle and situation. I can go to the pharmacies buying my medicine uh, without me, uh, the UNRWA help. Now, in this situation, when I displaced from my uh, department from uh, Gaza City to Rafah, and there is no any medicine in the pharmacies, if mm -hmm. I haven't the UNRWA to support me, to giving me my medicine, maybe I will die because I have many like chronic diseases like blood, blood mm -hmm. pressure, uh, Mediterranean fever, something like this. And you can imagine the others, the people whom sick with cancer, with different kinds of Of course. Of, huge, uh, huge implications uh, for so many people in the Gaza Strip. There is no any chance for the civilian here to survive from this genocide. I, I want to bring in Adi here, because Adi, you worked as a legal advisor for, for UNRWA for, for many years. And so you understand a little bit about funding cycles and, and how the agency also, also works. We know that there's no strategic reserve. There was already a funding crisis for UNRWA. How quickly could the effects of these funding cuts be felt on the ground? These, these funding cuts will be, effect on the, will be uh, experienced on the ground immediately. Uh, make no mistake about it. As Samir had just mentioned, UNRWA offers quasi-governmental services in the Gaza Strip. It is the largest uh, organization uh, in the Gaza Strip, quasi-governmental, if you like, health, education, relief, and social services. And in times of emergency of the sort that we're seeing now unfold since October, uh, what the International Court of Justice has determined is a plausible genocide, famine, starvation of the population as a tool of war, indiscriminate bombardment, forcible transfer of 1.7 million people, etc. UNRWA is the only lifeline, quite literally, to those people. There are 13,000 staff in the organization that operate in the Gaza Strip. And in this case, the allegations are that a number of, of staff, I think 12 in number, have been engaged allegedly on the events of 7 October. The agency has a zero tolerance policy for uh, any uh, criminal activity or outside activity, as it is called. Um, uh, undertaken by any of its staff. 
uh, and usually would, would engage in an investigation once any allegations are made. These allegations are so serious and the situation on the ground so perilous that the Commissioner General of the agency took a decision to terminate these staff members, even absent uh, the conclusion of an investigation. So it belies all credulity as to what the Western donors expect of UNRWA, what they expect of the United Nations beyond that um, uh, to do uh, before they kick their, their money back, back in. Without those funds, people will die. Without those funds, there will be famine, that the famine will exist and will, will ravage that population. So it makes very little sense, uh, to my mind, uh, the move to, to withdraw funds. How do you um, use the word you know, the lifeline? And I just want to pick up on that because I understand that UNRWA is at the moment facilitating something like 80% of aid deliveries into Gaza. So it's not just at UNRWA facilities, but it's also facilitating aid for other aid organizations getting into the Gaza Strip. As you say, famine is looming. Let me ask you, Raymond, what would be the impact, for instance, on your organization um, if this does well, continue? Would you be able to continue operating? Well, it would be very difficult, and uh, of course, UNRWA is a lifeline uh, for the Palestinians, but to some extent, also the lifeline for other uh, responders. They have the infrastructures, they have the networks, and uh, everyone is totally dependent on what the services coming up from, from UNRWA. As you rightly mentioned, we have been there since uh, 1987. Uh, and uh, we are supporting uh, different uh, local organizations. They are there. They are among the IDPs. They are doing their best with uh, providing necessities. But of course, the impact, generally speaking, for the people in, in Gaza, if uh, the assistance to uh, UNRWA will stop, it's immense, dramatic. And uh, I think the international community must do their utmost to ask those who know has said they want to freeze and suspend uh, their assistant to uh, UNRWA to reconsider that. And I'm very happy that the uh, Norwegian government is not among those who is going to, to stop the necessary assistant to uh, UNRWA. And let me also add uh, that I will actually give uh, credit to the response coming from, uh, uh, from UNRWA after they received these very, very serious ac accusations that they immediately act, they suspend the people, they do the utmost, like uh, not all organizations will do the same as rapid as they have done. So uh, I think uh, we also shall give some credit to Lazzarini and UNRWA in the way that they immediately respond on these very, very serious uh, accusations. Uh, Raymond, I just want to ask you a little bit about what you think the implications might be here for Israel. Because, as you say, if UNRWA doesn't receive more funding and, and it's not able to facilitate aid deliveries and there is an obligation for aid to enter the Strip, presumably Israel is going to have to take on more of that responsibility. Do, do you see that happening? Well, uh... <laughs> To some extent, uh, you have seen the Israeli tactic, it's bombing, but what uh, the long-term strategy is, it's very, very hard to see what will be the long-term consequences you have for the bombing and what will happen in Gaza next and know what will happening with the humanitarian crisis. Will they be responsible or will they take for granted that the international community 
and who in the international community will will respond uh, to that. So it's very hard for me to see a clear strategy. So uh, now we are talking about a two-state solution, bringing parties together, and at the same time, therefore, also, I think, uh, generally speaking, the Palestinians need to see that uh, the international community is sincere about uh, their efforts now trying to find a political solution and to stop uh, the humanitarian assistance to UNRWA is not the first to respond to build this necessary confidence in believing in an uh, eventually uh, uh, <laughs> a peace, peaceful settlement, although it's long-term. Uh, Samir, I'm wondering what the feeling is like there in Gaza at the moment whether or not this potentially could, could backfire entirely and, and perhaps create the grounds for further radicalization as the humanitarian situation deteriorates even further, basically having the opposite effect to what these, these donors are potentially wanting? I think, I think the, 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 the feeling of the Gazanian uh, uh, when it comes to this decisions to, to uh, cutting the fund for the UNRWA the people uh, like hopeless now and they are frustrated and feel in a fear that they will die because there is no uh, no food because there is no medicine because no any like basic services for the people basic humanitarian services in this time and uh, what's choking me and i think many of the gazinian that the israeli allegation it's not start by this time, it's like years ago, they are trying to target not just the UNRWA, all the, the UN agencies here, it's working on the uh, Palestinian uh, occupation territories, are accused by Israel that they are supporting ter uh, terrorists, and, and many of even the international uh, organization. And when it comes to the reality, to the investigation, real investigation, we find that it's fake. We are talking about a very huge organization which working in, in I think, five countries. In, in just, it's not just in Gaza. In Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. in West Bank, in Jordan, in Syria, in, in Lebanon. Indeed. Where the, the Palestinian refugees are, you, you, you find the UNRWA there. And I don't think that anyone, even the Israeli, in 7th October, with their, like, a huge power, especially in intelligence issue, they couldn't, like, uh, 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 estimate that it will happen, and it's happened. How can anyone, like, make this a decision when there is just allegations and making this collective punishment for all the Gazanian in this time when, mm -hmm. when they are needing even the people whom doesn't need any kind of help for, from UNRWA before. Now, all the people here needing the UNRWA huge, uh, support huge and needs, the indeed. UNRWA uh, services. So, so that Samir, the, you're, you're describing there for us how a lot of people are feeling. Live to die, to die. You're describing how people are also feeling deserted by the international community, and I want to understand some of the legal obligations here. Adi, as we've been saying, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, has just ruled that genocide could be taking place in Gaza. One of the, the emergency measures that it put into place was to say that there needed to be effective humanitarian aid entering Gaza. That needed to be scaled up. 
Is there some kind of legal imperative here for member states? Uh, is there a, a legal obligation, for instance, for, for these donors to continue funding um, an agency that is essentially facilitating that aid? Thanks, Nastasia. Let me just take it back one step. The first obligation is on the occupying power, Israel, to facilitate and ensure humanitarian aid to scale and appropriate for the needs of the people on the ground who are suffering, as you said, a plausible genocide, according to the International Court of Justice. But there's also obligations on the part of third states, uh, because they are signatories to the Genocide Convention. They have an obligation to, quote unquote, prevent genocide from taking place. And it belies all credulity, as I said earlier, that these states, within 24 hours of these allegations having been made of wrongdoing on the part of a handful of staff members at UNRWA, would withdraw their funds from the agency when, in fact, they have a positive obligation to uh, prevent genocide, which can be connected to, obviously, the requirement to ensure humanitarian aid and assistance. So it is a highly irresponsible move by the Western donors. It's cruel for the reasons that we've set out already, but it clearly is also uh, possibly legal, illegal uh, in, in respect of their, their obligations. I might also just say this, going back to the Israeli side. Look, the relationship shared between UNRWA and Israel is a long one. And in fact, the agency operates within the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, at the invitation of the government of the state of Israel. This is regulated through an agreement called the Komei-Mikkelmore Exchange of Letters of 1967, and the Israelis undertook, not only affirmed their international obligations to do so, but undertook to facilitate humanitarian aid and assistance to the Palestine refugees living in the occupied Palestinian territory since 1967 and through UNRWA. So going back to the exchange you had with Raymond, if, if the Israelis won't allow us, well, won't allow the agency to do its work on the ground, especially at a time like this, unprecedented levels of violence being waged against the people, and if the donors, the Western donors, don't kick up the funds to make it happen, that is to support the agency's humanitarian assistance in line with their own international legal obligations, where, who is going to fill this breach? Where are the Palestinians who are subjected to this plausible genocide going to seek relief? It really turns the world on its head. And I think uh, uh, the Western states really do need to think very carefully about revisiting their position. UNRWA is the only lifeline to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And in this time of genocide, now is not the time to be behaving this way. Adi, you mentioned Western states there. And I'm wondering where Arab states are on this. Uh, Raymond, do you think that, that Arab states could step in to, to fill this funding gap? I know Philippe Lazzarini is already saying that this could affect regional stability. Well, I heard some news today that uh, Algeria and some others maybe will be willing to do that. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I think they, uh, they have to also to step up. But it's, it's, it's a double discussion here because it's the credibility and the respect for UN, which was established after the Second World War. Uh, as because we have to believe in international rules. That's not uh, through wars uh, that we shall solve uh, uh, the problem between nations. We have to have a united nation. And then we see from Friday the rulings from ICJ, and it was very clear in that ruling that uh, at least they have to push Israel for getting uh, to provide them to have humanitarian assistance into Gaza. That was a very important part of the ruling. 
and the day after they they frozen the support to UNRWA, which is the lifeline. So it's also serious in the respect of the international body of United Nations. And in these days, in the war-torn societies, we need a stronger UN. So it's also the big nations. They have to feel responsible for giving an extra support uh, also to UN as institutions. So uh, I think that also for the humanitarian society in these days, it's extremely, extremely important. And uh, if not, we will see that different strong cities, no strong uh, uh, countries will, will win, and small countries who is totally depend on having an international order, uh, international law, uh, they will fall between two shares. So I hope that the Arabic countries will step up, but first and foremost, I hope that UN will not suffer as much as they are doing now. Well, let me put that question then to Samir, because Raymond, you're talking there about the ongoing existence and trust in an international rules-based order. Samir, is there, is there a belief and trust in that system right now in Gaza? Do people still believe and, and trust in the United Nations? I think after the decision of ICJ, it's like, uh, it's yani, making the people kind of retrust the, the uh, international system, the, the, humanitarian, the human rights laws and this stuff. Because before, they, they find it's like, it's a fake issue. It's just, they are abusing it. They're using it just to, their, to achieve their like, benefits or goals political and economical goals. But when it comes to the Palestinian, why we are suffering this, this very long time? Because the international community, given the Israel, the immunity, the immunity, it's there everywhere. If they are account for their war crimes or the grave violation for the humanitarian law, I don't think that we will reach this point. But the ignorance of the international community for the Palestinian question and uh, what the Israelian behave, especially this government, this very fundamental government, which coming in in a plan to displace, to, to by force to, to displace all the Palestinians from uh, uh, the, the uh, 1967 uh, Palestinian lands in West Bank and uh, Gaza Strip. And it's a speech of this government ministries like Ben Ghafir, Smotrich, this is their program. So that I, I don't think that uh, uh, um, uh, this will happen if we have like the implementing of the international orders. For example, the, the UN Security Council uh, uh, decisions or the General Assembly decisions. If the international community take uh, its rule to implement the, the laws in this area, I don't think that we will face this. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this uh, initiative, which coming from the USA and the others, after the ICJ decision, it's kind of, of uh, collective punishment, not just for the Palestinian, the Gazanian, but even for all the UN system, because uh, they ha they're targeting mm -hmm. every uh, UN agencies. Uh, 
Samir, Samir, you're saying that Palestinians were finally feeling heard. As I said before, and the others, so that it's a strategy. Yeah, you, you were saying the Palestinians were finally feeling heard when it came to the International Court of Justice ruling, but now everyone is facing even further deprivation. I'm afraid we'll have to leave our discussion there for today. Obviously, a situation we'll continue watching incredibly closely here on Al Jazeera. Thank you to all of our guests for now, Samir Zakut, Adi Imseis, and Raymond Johansson. This episode was produced by Mohammed El Aishi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedrosa, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound by Fadzil Yahya. The program was edited by Alex Kohler, Zainab Bader, and Joda Frias. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in again on Tuesday for our next one. Coming up on The Take, what's happening in Yemen after U.S. and U.K. airstrikes there? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.